Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched It Chapter 2, the hotly anticipated sequel to 2017's It, an unexpected box office hit that wound up grossing over $700 million worldwide. Off to a promising start within $185 million opening weekend, It Chapter 2 picks up 27 years after the first movie left off. Old friends Bill, Beverly, Richie, Eddie, Ben, and Stanley have left the cursed town of Derry and forgotten their childhood traumas until Mike, who remained at home, calls to tell them to come home to fight the evil clown Pennywise once more. So I had not seen It when it first was released. Um, it just didn't really grab my attention, but it was a huge success, as those numbers indicate, and the second movie was really hotly anticipated as a result. Uh, so I knew I was going to have to watch this first movie in order to podcast about this one, and because it had been so successful, I became intrigued by it sort of as a result. So I watched the first movie, I think, like three days before seeing the second one Which is really ideal, because as I said after watching this yesterday, I was messaging Morgan, like, there's too many boys in this. Not in the like sexism sense, because obviously they're like adapting a book or whatever. I was just like, there's too many. All of these boys, I can't tell the difference. If you've seen the first film three days before, that's ideal because you can remember what all their alleged character traits are meant to be. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have any trouble with that, which was really helpful. And um, it was really interesting to see that first movie sort of outside the context of its initial sort of hysterical reception by everyone because I really enjoyed it. I thought it was on par good, but um, I don't think I was necessarily swept up in the response the way that some people probably were, which is fine. Like seeing horror movies in the cinema, as we've discussed before, is fun and part of the fun. Is yeah, I really sort of enjoyed the first one. It was funny and also genuinely really scary, but not in a sort of here's some deep psychological trauma kind of way. It was just like scary in a really fun way. Whereas I watched it and was like, this isn't scary. <laughs> Part of that, I think, is that I do not find clowns scary at all. I find them like absurd and not, you know, I mean, the, like the, the circus fine, I guess, whatever. And so every time you're supposed to be like, oh, my God, the scary clown. I was like, it's a fucking clown. Like, really? Okay. Um, and one of the things that was noticeable to me about that first movie was that there's actually a really low sort of share of the movie proportionally that is dedicated to like horror movie content in terms of like scary stuff and jump scares and etc. A lot of the movie is dedicated to just like the kids hanging around or dealing with their families or yeah, that you can kind really of stuff. see how much Stranger Things draws from this. Yeah. And I mean, there's obviously the obvious casting overlap of one of the main characters is played by one of the kids from Stranger Things. Yes. And I thought that the stuff with the kids was written fairly superficially. Um, the, they're supposed to all have these traumatized pasts and they're done not, in not, a not very deep way, but it's written competently. Like it's not great, but it's not bad. So, and the direction by Andy Muschietti is totally, again, like competent to good in a very sort of studio way. And that's a really backhanded compliment. But I think that... <laughs> Andy like, Muschietti's like first horror film, Mama, is incredible. It's so good. 
It's like an indie film starring Jessica Chastain and what is his name who plays Mr. Lannister in Game of Thrones um, and a couple of spooky kids. Both of these films are written by a guy named Gary Doberman or Gary Doberman who wrote all of the Annabelle franchise movies. So I don't feel like people are like, he's a literary great. But I think the reception from fans of the book is relatively positive. Neither of us have read any of the 1,500 page (laughs) tome that is it. We respect its popularity. I went to both films with my friend Danny, who is very into this book. Um, So she was able to tell me how much has changed. So I will be able to give some input into like the alterations they made in the second film, especially kind of the ending. Um, But I think if I'd been adapting this, I obviously do not think I would be qualified to adapt this because it's clearly a very complicated thing that requires professionals. I'm not one of these people who's like, I'm going to barge in and tell you how to do it. But they should have fucking combined some of the boys. Like, (laughs) they do not need seven main characters. They just should have combined some of the boys together so they had like a nice balance of maybe four boys. Well, this is part of the thing about the first movie and my general feeling about it. Like, I felt it was a solid B movie right um when i talked about his direction being like competent to good i don't think this is a brilliantly directed movie but i think it is directed in a way that is totally pleasurable to watch and that is a compliment like doing a sort of studio movie that is really just like fun and enjoyable to watch is really not easy and i think that the that movie pulls that off in a really good way On the other hand, there are just too many characters to deal with, right? Like, you cannot get into anything particularly deep when you have that many characters to be bouncing around. And And the mic situation. Yes. So one of the main characters of that first film is this boy, or main characters, I say in quotation marks, is uh, this boy, Mike, who is the only Black member of the cast. And he basically has no personality. He's not a member of the main group initially. And then he like sort of becomes one, but he has maybe like 10 lines of dialogue the entire film. It is handled incredibly poorly. I remembered seeing some conversation about this when the movie came out. So I was vaguely aware that this was an issue in the film. But even with that kind of at the back of my mind, watching it, I was shocked by the degree of this being the case. It was really, really bad. And so that's a problem in the first movie. There's a horrible, horrible love triangle between the one girl in this group and two of the boys that we will get into more regarding the sequel. So there's some elements in it that I thought worked really badly. And then also a lot of it that is just kind of fun to watch. So again, like B movie, I enjoy watching it. I had some problems with it, but like on the whole fun i completely understand it's very funny when the tweens swear at each other yes (laughs) the kids have a really good rapport with each other i think all of the kid actors in that movie are fantastic which is i think probably the main reason why it was so successful it's really hard to get good kid actors and i thought they were all great so i get why it made so much money it is like a pleasurable time at the cinema right so i was looking forward to the second one in like a genuine way i like having a good time with the movies <laughs> the reviews were not encouraging <laughs> and i was like well sure you know whatever it's like a big <laughs> big multiplex horror movie i'm going to on a weekend with a friend like fine <laughs> we're both sitting there and i went with our mutual friend elizabeth with whom you collaborate on your um, newsletter the rec center and it was it, finished and we looked at each other and she was like you know what I enjoyed about that movie James McAvoy wore jeans the whole time and he rode a bike (laughs) and I was like I agree that was enjoyable and that was like 
the end of our level of enjoyment of this film, I thought it was so bad. Like, oh my god. Shockingly bad, given the fact that it was coming from the people who made the first one, which again wasn't great, but was like a good studio entertainment. What happened? What happened? 169 minutes long. And one of my suggestions to gently trim that runtime, which I do not think was necessary, even though, you know, I fucking loved every moment of the famously very long horror movie Midsummer. However, this film, unusually long for horror movie, which usually runs for almost half that length, and maybe if they'd removed, let's say, all of the fat jokes... (laughs) Just to begin with, there were several elements of this movie which were embracing offensive concepts from a latter period in American history, because that is kind of the concept of this movie, right? It's like, it is meant to be like, wasn't it really shit to be in small town America being bullied because you're an outsider in the 1980s? And like the book was set earlier, so it was like the book I think it was like late 50s or early 60s and then it picks up 27 years later. So it's like apparently the reason why all of the main characters are really successful when they're adults is because it was written so the present day was like in the yuppie era. Because when I was watching this, I just asked my friend afterwards, like, why are all of these characters like millionaires when they're adults? Because it's like as they grow up, one of them is like this executive. One of them is a really famous, successful comedian. One of them is a best-selling author who's like married to a famous actress and is getting movies made of his books. One of them is in like an abusive marriage, like the one female character is in an abusive marriage, but like she co-owns like an impressive business with her husband and they're both clearly really wealthy. And like the one character who doesn't have this really impressive life after leaving the town is Mike, the black guy who stayed at home. And he has a much more screen time in this movie, but his role, once again, it's not like he has a character arc. So they all have arcs, but his role is to just sort of say, like call them all back, get the gang together and then explain what's going on in the town and explain how to get rid of it. So so there's like a lot of issues to do with the different roles all the characters have been given. And the parts that Morgan and I found unpleasant, it's not like I'm like, you shouldn't have homophobia in movies or you shouldn't have you know, you shouldn't have abusive relationships. Obviously, we have discussed many films which have lots of quote-unquote offensive content or like unpleasant things happen on screen because Morgan and I both love to watch a lot of depressing, hard-hitting, upsetting dramas. Uh, (laughs) But this movie's weird because it's like, it is meant to be a pure entertainment horror movie with like a silly clown. Thematically, it's also meant to be about people confronting their very real childhood trauma. But like the way that is treated is really all over the place. So the film begins with a very realistic and upsetting hate crime scene where famed indie director Xavier Dolan plays a young gay man who is horribly murdered by some homophobes in the town. And then much of the rest of the horror is kind of either someone's being killed by a clown, which is obviously like not like realistic fear or it kind of ties into the main character's childhood trauma like Beverly Jessica Chastain's child was like abused by her father Ben the kid who was fat as a teenager was bullied for being fat so there's like a lot of different grades of the ways that people were scarred by their childhoods and a lot of them don't resolve (laughs) because like Bill Hader's character who's really great and I, I enjoy Bill Hader in this movie as we always enjoy Bill Hader in everything he's very funny apart from 
the many times when he does fat jokes. Uh, but also his story is like he is this he's got this very grating personality he's very insecure he's very funny and mean and he's got this like close relationship with the other members of the losers club the other kids he was friends with but he's also closeted and kind of his trauma is that like what if the clown like outs him to everyone but we know that the stakes of that are like non-existent because obviously the closet is in his mind right like he is really fucked up about his sexuality because he was like scared of homophobic bullying as a child but there's not really any evidence that as an adult that would be a problem you know it's like it's clearly just like his psychological problem which is realistic like obviously so many people live like that in real life even if you have moved to like new york and it would clearly be fine for you to come out but also that doesn't resolve because at the end of the film he's still in the closet (laughs) well but also they just okay so I had this later in our outline, but let's just jump in because (laughs) Bill Hader is obviously the thing that people are talking about the most in this movie. I am the biggest Bill Hader fan that you could hope to find. Oh, she is. It's true. She loves Bill Hader. Where like years ago when he was um, starring in the Amy Schumer romantic comedy Trainwreck and everyone was all of a sudden like, oh my God, Bill Hader's hot. Numerous people were tweeting at me being like, Everyone is encroaching on your territory. Like, they found out. And I was like, I fucking know. I've been telling you all for years. Like, this is a long-standing thing for me. And uh, several weeks ago, an anonymous person on Tumblr messaged me, even though I barely use Tumblr anymore, the following wonderful message. Congrats on Bill Hader playing the adult version of the tormented gay kid in It. That seems like a solid combination of things that interest you, which I found delightful. Thank you. Like, yes, I was, I was ready. I was like, fantastic. And I'm watching this movie and I was like, okay. I found Bill Hader better than most of the other performers. I thought the performances were across the board not great, not because the actors are not talented, but because the script just didn't give them very much to do. I enjoyed James McAvoy. I mean, he's fine. I didn't enjoy the hot guy. We'll get onto that later. Yes. Didn't like him, though. No. Didn't like him. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, I thought even Bill Hader was, like, fine in this. I didn't think he was great because he just didn't have very much to do. His jokes were mostly not funny, especially the fat jokes, which were repulsive. He has the worst joke in this movie, which is a fat joke that was actually like upsetting to me to hear coming from Bill Hader's mouth. I was like, must we endure this? Like, please stop. But even beyond the sort of offensive stuff, just a lot of it just wasn't very funny. And Elizabeth and I were talking after and we were like, okay, so Bill Hader is much funnier than that. So was he not allowed to improvise like what was going on i mean his show barry and also like he definitely wrote a lot of his own saturday night live stuff are so much funnier than this film and i don't understand why you would hire him if you're not gonna make use of that it just seemed very odd to me but moving on to the sexuality stuff they don't demonstrate that he's like a tortured gay man right they have one flashback scene with thin wolfhard who plays his younger self (laughs) Like, to demonstrate that he was, you know, troubled by this when he was young. Which, that's not backed up in the first movie, really, at all. No, because I was just about to say, right, because I was hoping you'd be able to refresh my memory. Because, like, when I saw the first movie, I remember people were talking about one of the kids is closeted. And I kind of thought it was Stanley. But, like, I was like, I don't feel like they've really clarified this for any of the children. I didn't actually think it was Finn Wolfhard's character. And then watching this film, I was still like, I don't recall that happening, but I did watch the other film two years ago. So So he makes kind of too many, like, over-the-top jokes about girls and women 
in a sexual way that as I was watching it, I was like, this does kind of make sense. But it's, you would never... But also never... you could just be like an like an insecure straight boy. Like... Right. If you had no knowledge of this, you would never pick that up, I don't think, from that I'm not movie. sure it's in the book. Right. So the one flashback scene they have in this is like he's playing video games like at the arcade with a friend he, I guess, has a crush on. And the guy's like, oh, let's go. And he's like, oh, no, let's keep playing video games. And this is the big sign to everyone that he must be gay. Because obviously all teenage boys who want to keep playing video games are gay. I was like, could really? <laughs> like, that's the scene you've decided to write? And then, like, he gets harassed. And that's it. That's it in the whole movie. And then there's nothing else about Bill Hader's performance that particularly suggests this. And obviously, like, gay men behave in all kinds of different ways. It's not like he has to be acting, like, in a stereotypical campy well, fashion. Like, the implication is that he had this crush on Eddie. And right. all of the like mockery towards Eddie. And this is clearly something that people picked up on because I wasn't aware of this, but like Morgan was like, oh, people on Tumblr are all over this. So I looked it up and if you look at all the fanfic for it, which apparently there's a lot of, to my slight surprise, it, like literally thousands of people writing fanfic about these two characters. However, once again, I don't feel like the film actually demonstrates that Bill Hader is attracted to the Eddie guy. It does very much just seem like he's making fun of him. Yes. And this, it's not in the first movie either. And, like, Bill Hader has played a gay man before in the film The Skeleton Twins very effectively. And so I don't think it's him. I think it's just the movie doesn't really know what it's doing. And at the end, yeah, it's supposed to be that, like, he's, he's really upset about a thing that happens with Eddie. And I was like, you have not established this in anyway and so the fact that the movie's sort of supposedly doing this thing with this character that it isn't actually doing and also opens with this bizarre scene with Xavier Dolan of all people getting brutally murdered by homophobes I was just like what the fuck is happening and they were like oh we're like, keeping it in because it was like based on a real hate crime and it's like I guess you want to like highlight that or whatever but the treatment of that whole situation is all over the place. And it and it's like, I don't object to the concept of being like, like I said, the whole concept of this film is like embracing the idea of everything being super shit. And there's a ton of discrimination going on in small town America, especially like 30 years ago. But like, this film is not smart enough to handle that. And then also all the stuff that goes on with Bev, Jessica Chastain's character, um, obviously we both love Jessica Chastain who is an excellent actress and also is in this film I think partly because like I said she starred in the director's um, first feature film Mama but her intro is like she's in this horrible abusive relationship and when all of the losers get called back to their town by Mike she gets called back and she's ready to leave and then she gets into this really awful like physical fight with her husband and then basically flees but then there's no kind of conclusion to that because, I mean, she gets she gets nominally a happy ending, right? Because like she is part of this love triangle between two of the boys that she was friends with, and the f the film ends with her ending up with one of them. But we don't see the kind of the conclusion of her abusive relationship, which is clearly meant to sort of echo the fact that she had this really abusive childhood and she's like doesn't really have decent ideas of how to be loved because her father was a fucking nightmare. It's like makes sense. But it's like, I guess in the interim, she's divorced him or something, but they don't revisit that. None of her friends find out or acknowledge that she is physically bruised 
from being beaten up by her husband. And also when she leaves, it's like the, the, I guess like just the emotional tone of that scene is like, there's a lot of kind of clashing happening to do with like, she's willing to get into like a really intensively just full on fight him. But she's also like really cowed by him because she's been in this relationship, presumably like a decade and they don't really kind of give you a decent idea of what the kind of baseline of that relationship is. And then it just isn't discussed anymore. And Beverly's actual role in this film, like the stuff that Jessica Chastain gets to do, is pretty basic. Like she doesn't actually have an interesting role, partly because once again, there's like 11 million characters. I found that character much more compelling in the first movie. The yeah, love triangles bothered me a lot in that too, but I thought that the young actress did a really good job and that the stuff with her dad while done in a pretty basic way was creepy and upsetting and I thought yeah I thought it was really effective the horror stuff they did with her like there's all this stuff like her hair coming out of the sink and like blood all over the bathroom which is obviously like menstrual whatever um was effective and I just I liked that stuff and in this, I was like, what is she doing? Why is she here? What is happening? And basically all that she had to do was be there as an object for uh, Ben, the once fat kid who has grown up into a generic hunk because, of course, to just like gaze at. That's pretty much all that she does. And I was like, great. Fantastic. So- we have to discuss the love triangle. Oh. I'm assuming you guys don't give a shit about spoilers. You've seen the movie or you don't care. So the love triangle is between Bev, obviously, who is like the only girl any of these people are interacting with, which I guess makes sense because they're like 13 year old boys in 1989. However, there's like Ben, the fat kid, who's like very sweet and has a really obvious crush on her and writes her really lovely heartfelt poetry when he is in school. But it's clearly not reciprocated. They are friends. She's friends with all of them. Then there's Bill, who is kind of arguably the protagonist of the first film. He's the older brother of the original kid who gets kidnapped by Pennywise and um, he has a stutter and then he grows up into James McAvoy who is this big successful writer. Um, And none of these characters have been in touch in the intervening time. James McAvoy's character is married but it's implied not to be a happy marriage. Oh yeah, um, at the end of the first film, um, James McAvoy's child character kisses Bev. Then when they're all reunited, they start to regain their memories of childhood as adults. And um, there is definitely like chemistry between James McAvoy and uh, Jessica Chastain. I mean, also, I think they're friends. They worked together on this last shitty X-Men movie, which we did a podcast on. <laughs> Bad film. And other uh, movies previously. They've been on a and, lot of stuff together. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, they're buddies. They, and they, they've also like the characters have got great chemistry. And I was watching that and I was like, well, I'm squarely rooting for these characters to get together. Great. It basically very easy to forget the fact that James McAvoy's character is married, but also there is the fact that Ben has become, as Morgan described him, a generic hunk. He is tall, he is handsome, he has some type of architectural job, he does not have a personality, and the implication is that he has been single this whole time because he's like kind of still remembers this crush he has in Bev, even though they've lost all their memories. He has a page from their yearbook folded up in his wallet because she was the only person who signed it. And to this day, she doesn't know that he was the one writing the poetry and she kind of hopes that maybe it was Bill, James McAvoy's character. And then like in the final quarter of the film, she and Ben are just kind of put together in the same location for the final horror sequence. And then at the end of the movie, they kiss and it's like, isn't this romantic? And then in the kind of epilogue, she's with him on his yacht and they're living happily with a dog. And it's like, why? 
There's no reason for them to get together other than like, he is obviously far superior to their, her abusive husband, but it's also kind of, it feels weird, right? Like it's like the message is, oh, well, now he's conventionally hot. He's like a better prospect than he was when she didn't notice him and he was a fat kid. It just felt bad. You should just get together with the James McAvoy character. Like it's just, it was bad. Everything it was bad about choice. it was bad. I didn't like it in the first movie because obviously there's like, it's just being mean to the fat kid, right? Like it sort of just felt gross. But also like the way he kind of acts around her in the first movie wasn't like gross or inappropriate exactly, but he has this sort of attitude of just like, oh my God, oh my God, the pretty girl's talking to me. Oh my God. Which the classic sort of like nerdy, like really obsessed, doesn't understand how to talk to a girl. And like, part of what's compelling about her role in that movie is that she's just being sexualized by everyone and they're all like fucking 12. Yes. Which is like obviously intentional and was more so in the book apparently and they like turned it, tuned it down because that'd be more creepy. But like that is like a really compelling and upsetting thing, right? For her to be going through. And then in this one, it's like they're all just regular middle-aged people and it's like, well, I'm going to go for the hot guy now. And it's like, why? Why? What do you, what do you share? Nothing. Right. And he has no personality. <laughs> and one of the things that makes Bill, the James McAvoy character, appealing when he's a kid is that the, the rumors about her when she's a kid is that, like, she's the town slut, right? Like, she's, you know, gotten around with everybody, which is not the case. And he says, like, oh, I never believe that about you. And he kind of has a stutter and is also a little bit awkward. And, like, he is also dealing with trauma because his brother is dead. And, like, she clearly really likes him. And, like, he's cute and whatever. And, like, it's a nice little, you know, teen romance. And she likes him. She's an independent person with agency. Like, she's allowed to, you know, make her own choices. But no, the guy who wrote her the poem has to be the one who wins because he wrote her a poem. So... 30 years ago. <laughs> right. And again, like, he's hot now, so that's acceptable. But from a narrative point of view, it just makes no sense because the people making this movie should understand that we, the audience, are naturally going to root for James McAvoy because we know who he is. And he is more compelling as an A-list movie star than this random nobody. I mean, like, no offense, but that's just how people's minds work, right? I mean, he's work, like right? a neighbor's actor. Right, like, what? <laughs> and so the, just the idea that they thought this would work is so mystifying to me. And that she sort of finds out that he was the one who wrote the poem and then was like, oh, okay. And they like make out while like covered in blood. I was like, no, 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 that's not acceptable. And that that's the only thing that she has to do. It's just, I mean, we were discussing before and you, you mentioned earlier, like clearly she did this because she uh, knows the director and it sounds to me from interviews like the people in the movie signed on before they've seen the script, although I'm not certain that that's the case. The, again, like the first movie was such a huge deal that it sounds like people were very eager to sign on, which makes sense. But it has just been mystifying to me to witness the progression of her career over the past few years. People will probably remember that in 2011, she had 
six movies or something come out and she had not really been... She, like, appeared out of nowhere, essentially. Yeah, she'd been shooting all of this stuff and then it all came out at once. It was, like, Take Shelter, which is a movie with Michael Shannon that's really good, little indie, but she's great in it. Um, The Tree of Life, Terrence Malick, The Help, which she got nominated for an Oscar for, um, and some other small movies, but, like, the combined effect of that, everyone was like, who is this Jessica Chastain person? And she was kind of, like, the top of the world. She got nominated for an Oscar for Zero Dark Thirty not long after that. And it just seemed like she was going to be, like, one of our, you know, top, you know, leading women, right? And she's done some other great movies. She's amazing in A Most Violent Year, which I highly recommend. Um, She's obviously great in Crimson Peak, which we both love. But looking at her IMDb, it's just like, what are you doing? What well, is Well, it seems happening? like she's choosing a lot of projects that are fun and make a lot of money, which is interesting because usually the trajectory doesn't go from super acclaimed Oscar films and then it's like you just do like five years worth of films like Dark Phoenix. Like obviously it's not fully like that. There was the Aaron Sorkin movie Molly's Game. Obviously I did not watch that. It looked sexist and dumb. However, that was like a quote unquote Oscar kind of movie in like a popular sense. It definitely is like noticeable that her kind of serious roles vanished about five years ago and she has chosen I guess like cornier stuff and like her upcoming she's doing like an action thriller movie called Eve next and then after that she's got the all-female spy movie which has this amazing cast like Penelope Cruz, Lupita Nyong'o, Fan Bang Bang. It's like an amazing all-star cast and she is like the person who essentially made this happen to a certain extent like she's the producer um, she's been heavily promoting like how exciting the casting is but for some reason it's like well the person we should get to direct this is Simon Kinberg the man who she worked with on Dark Phoenix and by that example is clearly an appalling director and quite sexist so it's like a puzzling professional relationship however we are being very harshly judging the wonderful Jessica Chastain here it's just it is very mysterious well she's it is just some puzzling choices she's just an interesting figure to me because she is clearly incredibly intelligent and I mean very feminist yes and, and very intelligent about that like she's been very involved in the me too stuff and if you read any of her interviews talking about the sort of hollywood dynamics around that she clearly knows what she's talking about she's been very pointed about working with female directors which she has actually done which many people who make big noise about that don't actually follow through with um Everyone who has worked with her or interviewed her or anything says that she's just the nicest person, which obviously I don't know her, but it certainly seems like that actually is the case. Um, I like I have enormous respect for her. I think she's great. I, it's just it mystifies me that this is what Why is happening make bad with her film? career. Why make bad right. film? Right. Especially because she started out doing such great stuff. And if you listen to her talk about movies, she seems to really know what she's talking about. And then it's like Molly's Game. Real. I've seen that. It's not great. Like, her upcoming stuff is mostly not very encouraging either, although she is doing uh, a movie with Michael Showalter uh, with Andrew Garfield about uh, televangelists. So yes, that, yes, here for it. You know, fingers crossed. Yes. Um, but it was just really kind of depressing to me to see her in this movie because I know how talented she is, and she just, like, screams a lot. I mean, it's a horror movie, but that's, like, the extent of what she's doing it right? is a much it's less like, interesting oh. horror movie role than she did in the last film she did with literally this director yeah so you know so we should talk a little bit about the plot <laughs> how it resolves which is just i mean yeah i mean that's like i said the original book is 1500 pages long 
It is famously A, terrifying and B, very complicated. Like I'm actually not super familiar with reading Stephen King's work. Like I've not read much of his stuff. However, he's kind of known for, you know, he does all, he does a lot of books that are about like trauma in America, but he also famously will just like fling a bunch of stuff in there. Yes. <laughs> he also does a lot of like Native American burial ground situations, which was in this. And there was a lot of elements that they decided to remove, probably for a good reason. Um, and they did change around some stuff at the end. So like kind of the premise of this film is that all of the characters, as we said, have essentially forgotten what happened to them as kids. And they only remember once they return to the town and start to confront those memories. And confronting that trauma is how they defeat the evil. And kind of the way you defeat Pennywise slash it in the book is just by you know, acknowledging that it's not frightening, which is like, it's like, it's a hard kind of philosophical concept to illustrate on film, right? It's like, because you basically end up, they're all just going to have to fight a clown at the end, whatever happens, right? <laughs> and apparently the book also involves them going to like another dimension, which is like a bit out there when you've already got the idea that the it monster is like traveled from space and landed in caves and infested this whole place. And then can be like, you using like a Native American ritual, you can like trap him in a box there's a lot of different elements going on here. Um, but in the book, apparently originally what they have is that they all kind of forget again. And then in the movie, it's like they do remember, which I think is a better version. I think that it's good that they all remember because that is kind of like the the very obviously kind of blatant, like here's, you've, you've gone to therapy now concept. But like the end was so schmaltzy that I was just like, no, <laughs> the schmaltzy final five minutes. And I watch a lot of horror movies and like, this is just the very obvious treatment of like a theme that you get in a lot of horror because the whole point of horror is about confronting your fear, you know? Yeah, I mean, in general, I found the movie to be structured uh, poorly as uh, people may have assessed based on my comments. Oh yeah, another thing hour. actually, Morgan, when they split everyone apart, apparently they don't split them apart in the book. So they independently decided for the film to make all the characters be separate for like the middle, like one of the middle quarters. They could all individually confront their fears instead of being a squad. So, right. As you said, this movie is interminably long. And one of the problems with it compared to the first one is that like the most fun thing about the first movie is that you have this group of kids who have really good chemistry and they kind of mess around and the kids swear and it's funny and et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in this, they never really established that. And part of that is that, you know, the adult, like, I think it's harder with adult actors actually to, re like, establish that kind of thing. Because if you get a bunch of kids and just sort of throw them together and, and it works, like, it actually is easier, I think, to capture that. I liked the restaurant scene. The, well, yes. So the restaurant scene is the one time where they get to just, like, have fun. And then immediately they're like, let's all separate you into different places for a 45 minutes. I was like, why are you doing this to me? This movie is too long. They could have cut that entire bit and it would have been like a two hour movie with no adverse consequences to the story. And the fact that they don't interact with each other nearly as much in this film means that the characters aren't developing in a particularly meaningful way. And unlike the first one, a huge amount of the movie is dedicated to more of the jump scare type stuff, which like it's a horror movie, that's fine. But because the characters aren't progressing, it doesn't feel meaningful. It feels more like, oh, let's just have them go into a basement, right? Like th there'll be a scary thing in the basement. Well, okay, but you haven't built up to this in any meaningful way. 
And so by the time they get to the last portion, which is where all of this like absurd, like Native American mumbo jumbo that explains all of this comes to fruition. When they, when he first explained like the plot of this, which is that like, yes, the Native Americans told me this using their drug, Elizabeth and I were staring at each other like, what? It's like, this is one of the things they decided to keep in. They decided to keep this part, did they? (laughs) Yeah. Like so much had already happened in the movie and there had been so much stuff already that I felt quite fatigued. And then it just felt outsized and kind of almost out of the movie's control. Like it was just too much. And they do the thing where like Pennywise is totally huge now. And I think that's partially to illustrate that like to defeat him, they have to make him really small. And I thought that that was effective, but it felt a little bit like the sequelitis thing where they're like, Oh, to make this one better, we have to go bigger. And I was like, but you, you don't though. It just has to be also interesting. And yeah, the the schmaltz factor at the end, I agree, was um, excessive, I would say. I think it would have been fine if they'd forgotten again at the end, but they would have had to back that up with a better movie, which they didn't have. So what can you do? Also, didn't you tell me that the all the romance nonsense was not? Yeah, in- my fr- I'm pretty sure my friend told me last night that they put that in. I mean, just why? Puzzling. Yeah, really odd. I think if you were going to combine characters, I think what you could have done is basically just deleted Stanley entirely. Yes. Because, like, what was Stanley doing? Don't need Stanley. And then, like, combine Eddie and Mike. Because it's like each of the characters have a concept. And unfortunately, Mike's concept is that he is the one black character, which is not a personality trait. Yes. (laughs) So Eddie is the one who's really neurotic. So make that Mike. And then you've got all of the other characters are still there and you've made it less racist. So um, (laughs) that would be my solution to that one. Obviously, you could just cast it really diversely, but I guess they are kind of making a point about like small town, whatever. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you obviously there are multiple approaches to this kind of blockbuster and one of them is just like, who cares? And that's fine. But if they want to have any sort of accurate depiction of small town Maine, I can say as a... New England person, especially if this is taking place in the past. Uh, lots of white people in Maine. So so you can do the good old combination, which many people do in many films, including historical dramas. And uh, instead of having like 11 main characters, <laughs> do that. Um, but yeah, this this film was, I liked the first one. I, I mostly had an enjoyable experience watching this. My friend who really loves the book was much more into it than I was, but like all the way through, I was having just the same thoughts that Morgan had, just more forgiving in terms of finding it entertaining because I like a good horror movie, but like, come on. Mistakes were made. Yeah. And that film was long. Well, also, I mean, if you are for some reason listening to this and haven't seen either of them, even though they're obviously, it's pitched as a two-part story, you can fully watch the first one and just stop. Oh, yeah. You don't need the second part. It's Because it's like, what happens in the second part? Oh, they defeat Pennywise again. Yeah, it's not... (laughs) They return to the same locations of the first film and do it again. And it's too bad because there's such a great potential for what this is in terms of redoing all the sort of traumas. But the thing is, literally what that is, is The Haunting of Hell House, which I view as a masterpiece. The Haunting of Hell House Netflix show is incredibly good. And the whole philosophy of that show is that the main characters are a group of siblings who when they were children 
their parents were house flippers. They bought this massive crumbling mansion and it was haunted and it was like a really traumatic experience that led to the death of one of their family members. And the show takes place partly in flashbacks to when they're kids and partly in the present day when they're all in their 30s. They're all deeply fucked up in very different ways, but they all kind of are having to like interact with each other to like meet up for various reasons to do with their family. And they re-examine their childhood trauma and things they've forgotten and things they've misremembered. And some of them are like, oh, ghosts are real. And some of them are just like, we had a fucked up childhood and don't remember it accurately. It's a very high quality, straight up drama about grief and childhood trauma, as well as being an absolutely fucking terrifying horror story with really genuinely scary ghosts. And it's like, we just had that. And like, obviously it is like a funnier more lighthearted version of that so it's like not really playing to the same audience but like we have a very mainstream well-known example of doing this precise concept really well yeah you would think that in that case they would have perhaps watched that show and uh taken some notes but evidently they did not do that well good old i mean you know it is on a basic conceptual level intentionally much wackier so well but that's i mean I haven't read the book, and I totally get that adapting a 1,500-page novel is a tall order. But it could have been weirder, even. Like, it's not even that weird. Like, the weird stuff is, like, the Native American stuff, which shouldn't have been in it. So, like, all the actual horror stuff that they do is pretty pedestrian, I thought. And I didn't find very interesting, because it was like, oh, a scary old lady. A scary, you know, like, spider thing. I loved all the monsters. The little, the little grimy monsters were great. Yes. Really good, like, horrible slimy bugs and whatever. Delicious. Yeah. It wasn't that it was bad. It just was that it was sort of like, oh, yeah, you know. I liked the bugs coming out of the fortune cookies. And that was early in the movie, so it was kind yeah. of downhill from there, The dinner scene and fortune cookies scene is probably the highlight of the film. Yeah. And it literally is, like, 20 minutes. In the Unfortunately, time. it is 20 yeah. minutes in. <laughs> I did also really like it when Bill Hader threw up. <laughs> Happened twice. He threw yeah, up threw twice. twice. <laughs> <He vomited. laughs> oh dear. Anyway, um, I would not recommend this film. See something else. You have yeah, I mean, options. if you ever need horror recommendations, oh boy, do I fucking have like a vast menu of different types of horror <laughs> that I can recommend to you. <laughs> She's ready. She's raring to go. All right. Um, so next week we will be posting our Jupiter Ascending episode to go with the commentary track that we already have on Patreon. So get ready for that. If you would like to prepare for our Jupiter Ascending episode, you can watch along with us with our commentary, our delightful, witty commentary, uh, which you can find on Patreon. That is for subscribers at the $3 tier or above. I think it's quite entertaining. We've had some positive feedback. So uh, you can head over there for that. And we're heading into fall. So there's going to be a lot of exciting fall movie stuff forthcoming which we're very excited about uh we will be heading to the new york and london film festivals in october so look out for all of our festival coverage at that point um but it will be jupiter ascending next week to sort of have some fun pop entertainment before we get into some more serious movies for much of the fall you can find our patreon at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. We are on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks 
Bye.